0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using
1: their free high speed Wi Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at lq.com. I'm Travis Hornsby, and you're destroying student debt on the Earn and Invest podcast.
0: bear with me for a moment because this connects. My father died when I was eight years old. And at that time, he had two insurance policies, or actually one. He was supposed to have two insurance policies, but the company he worked for had hired him eight months earlier and had promised that they would take out a $1 million insurance policy on his life. And then they forgot. So when my father passed away unexpectedly, he had one insurance policy for $200,000. Now this was in the early 1980s. And my mom took that money and she put it into bonds at the time because inflation was so high that bonds were paying like over 15 or 20%. And she put it in something called the Magellan Fund and she left it for 10 years. At the end of those 10 years, That $200,000 became enough money to send my three brothers and I to college. It sent one of my brothers to graduate school, and it sent me to medical school. And at the end, there was a little money left over. So I don't know a heck of a lot about student loans. It really wasn't a part of my upbringing. It wasn't a part of my financial experience. Yet, I've had the honor of meeting Travis Hornsby a number of times and hearing him speak, and I started getting excited about student loan planning. And I figure if I got excited about it, then many of you here would be interested in what he has to say. Travis and I have met a number of times at a bunch of different events. I've had a blast every time I've seen him. I would say he's the guy who made student loan planning sexy, if that's possible. Travis, welcome back to the show.
1: Wow, I've never heard it described like that before, Doc G.
0: <laughs> we like to get a little colorful on the show.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, student loan planning actually can be sexy if, you know, you think about growing someone's career, getting access to any career you want to, anybody from any background can achieve any dream that they want without having it ruin their lives for decades and decades. I mean, that's that's the part that I think you could describe as sexy.
0: Yeah, and and certainly, you know, I had you Travis on two other episodes. One of them was a fix my finances episode with a listener named Kay. And that was a lot of fun too. It was pretty cool to dive into her finances. And it gave me a window into your life because through student loan planning, your general vision of a physician's finances is pretty broad. I was amazed at how extensively you kind of understood what it felt like to walk in their shoes.
1: Well, it helps that I'm married to a physician because <laughs> cause I, know, I know what it's like you know, when you have a six-figure debt to pay back. I know what it's like to start your life way later than the rest of your peers that are already working at big finance and tech companies making plenty of money while you're going deeper into debt. I know what it's like to have to figure out what's a good thing to negotiate for for your salary. I know what it's like to have your pay cut 20, 30% because of the pandemic <laughs> simply because I experienced it as a spouse of a position. I you know obviously I don't know what it's like to experience it personally, but you know given that I'm as close as you can be without actually experiencing it.
0: Let's talk a little bit about your personal experience to begin with. I feel like student loan planning came after you really figured out your financial way. It almost felt like your business was a little bit of an afterthought.
1: Yeah, it, it kind of was because I was really into the financial movement, independence movement, the fire movement, right? Where you retire early, radically early. And it was coming for me from a place of discontent. I was in corporate America. I was in a place where I didn't love waking up every morning and I hated hitting my alarm clock off, right? And having that experience is something that so many people, maybe the person listening to this right now, can relate to or could relate to at some point in their life. And so I thought the solution to that was to save up a fixed amount of money with the job that I had that I wasn't super passionate about. And then I, my problem would be fixed. I would be able to stop working. I would be able to finally just enjoy life and, and do anything that I wanted to do. So at the ripe old age of 25, I decided to try this. So I sold everything that I had. I sold my car, sold every possession, and I went and traveled the world and went to about 40 countries. And around that same time, right before I left on this trip around the world, I met the woman who's now my wife. And she had a lot of student debt. And that planted a seed of becoming interested in the problem because I, like you, got very lucky and didn't have any student debt for my undergraduate degree. I didn't have a professional degree, just an undergraduate degree. And in the background that I had as a bond trader, I was using those Excel skills from that bond trading career to build tools to help my then-girlfriend, now-wife, figure out all of the complex government rules surrounding student loan repayment. And the thing that I didn't realize was that it wasn't about financial independence for me. It was about being able to do anything that I wanted to do and feel passionate about it, right? And so many people that are in a place of discontent, it's not that you're meant to necessarily go kick back and sit on a beach, although I hope you do a lot of that. It's also to try to find your purpose, right? The Maslow's hierarchy of needs, self-actualization is the top pillar on that. And you know, if you don't find something to do to feel useful for, then it doesn't matter if you have $10 million, you're going to feel depressed, you're going to feel like you don't have a purpose. And I don't want that for everybody. I want everybody to feel like they're doing exactly what they were meant to do. And the exciting thing is for me, that's helping people figure out student loan debt for somebody who we help. It's somebody that can do anything they want to do, regardless of how much they owe to anyone.
0: So you walked away from this dream of early retirement to do student loan planning. We talked a little bit, or you just talked a little bit about Maslow and self-actualization.
1: What spoke to you with this kind of work? I just liked helping people that had a bright future ahead of them where they had already invested so much so that they could be successful. You know, I was working at a at a at a giant investment company managing tax exempt investments. If you manage tax-exempt investments for people, generally those people are millionaires and billionaires, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. You're still supposed to exercise fiduciary duty and you're still supposed to save shareholders money. And a lot of those people are mere Two millionaire you know two million that are retired and trying to live on a fixed income you know on fifty you know to eighty thousand a year or something so I'm not saying that's a bad thing. it was just something that I wasn't passionate about because I wasn't taking somebody who was vulnerable and, and helping them leave a, lead a better life because if you think about financial planning in general in today's world it's totally broken because good financial planning applies to two percent of the population that's who can hire a fiduciary fee only planner and pay them either 1% of assets under management or $300 a month planning fee, right? You have to have an income of you know, basically anywhere from one hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 typically to pay a $3,000 a year planning fee, right? So you either have a six-figure income, which is you know, a minority of the population, or you have a six-figure amount of assets, which is a big minority of the population, right? And with student loan planning, a lot of people feel like they never can get to that point ever. And I am not capable of solving society's ills. I, with all of the, the, the things that we've seen in society, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, it's just really on everyone's mind, I think, in America right now, just all of the tragedies that are happening, you know, to people of color and, and people that are less privileged. And, and I don't know if I can solve that, but what I felt like is I can basically take these people that have an education, that are super stressed and, 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 and don't know what to do, feel hopeless which maybe that's like the top half of the income distribution. And I can have a big solution for that top half. So in other words, that 50th percentile to the 98th percentile, let's call it, right? Of, of, of incomes and education in America. Cause people that have six figures of student loan debt generally are, are quite accomplished. Do you know what I mean? Like, like quite, quite capable of a, a, a decent income like you're not going to take out 50,000 or more in student loan debt generally and then go work at uh, a minimum wage job. It just doesn't really typically happen because you have an education. You you are a competent capable person. Otherwise you would not have that debt in the first place, right? So, so that's that's the solution that I think I've been able to bring to the table as somebody who's young, who's so confused about what to do with their student loans. We really get them on a path to reaching a point where they will even be able to hire a fiduciary financial planner one day to get to the point of retiring at a great age and having a great financial picture overall so that's what i'm i guess proud of is like i can't solve the world's problems but what i can do is is find like this very burdened group of young people that student loans are all they think about and i can eliminate that from the picture basically
0: and it hits me just as I listen to you talk that this is really part of a much larger financial solution. It doesn't sound like you just look at student loans as a unique and sole problem, but that you really look at it as part of helping someone financially as part of their complete picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like money coaching, honestly. You know, the, the thing is, is, you know, we wrap it all around the student loans. Like the student loans are the centerpiece of everything because you have to solve that to show somebody how do you get to that next step in life where you're feeling like it's not a burden anymore. One thing I love to tell people is if you had a, a million dollars and 500,000 of student loan debt, would you feel a burden? And they generally say no, because my net worth would be positive 500,000, right? So what's really burdening people is actually not their student loans, it's lack of assets. And the debt that people have only traps somebody if you have a monthly payment. So, you know, Doc, I know you're not gonna do this, but if you went out and bought a $3 million house, you know, the, the thing that would burden you would not be, you know, the $3 million house, it would be the $15,000 a month or $20,000 a month mortgage payment, right? I mean, that would be the burden is that required payment has to happen no matter what. So if you look at a person with a lot of student loan debt today, if they have, especially if they have federal student loans, if they have maybe hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars 300000 of student loan debt, a two or $3,000 monthly payment is debilitating. It's debilitating not only to your personal finances but it's also debilitating to you maybe quitting your job and trying a lower paying field that you're more passionate about it's debilitating to you starting a family and hiring a you know you know somebody to help with daycare it's debilitating towards you buying a house all those things are obstacles you can't reach that next step because you have this dead prison that you're in right and so you might want to build assets but you can't even build assets because you have five figures of student loan interest hitting you in the face every single year and how do you fight back against that if you're making anywhere around the typical income in, in America of a professional? So the thing is, is, there's so many ways around dealing with that. You know, It's a program that was created by the federal government and there are solutions that you can use that are federal solutions to kind of ameliorate the problem. And then you can also pursue a private solution, private sector solution, which is if, if the federal solutions for student loans are not good or not attractive, then you can simply refinance your student loan debt and you know, basically trade it into a private lender and, and you do that because you're getting a lower interest rate and pay it back completely. So there's a lot of options.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the scope of this debt prison. I saw you tweet a while back that you have now helped manage over a billion dollars of student loan debt.
1: How big is student debt a problem in the United States today? Uh, 1.7 trillion dollar problem. So that that's that's pretty big, right? But it, I would say the so there's different there's different levels of the problem. That's that's the thing that people kind of don't really recognize is people talk about student loans, and it's really multiple kinds of problems. So I think one problem is a cost and an access problem. So if you see that, you know, so so I'll give you an example. in, in prior years, the cost of education was way way lower, but you know, if you needed funds to go to school, you might have had to go to a bank and have a line of credit or an asset like a house to go and access capital to go to school, right? So it might have been much, much cheaper. But if you are someone from an underrepresented background, person of color, person that's a lower socioeconomic status, then you couldn't have accessed that degree to get to this point where you're bettering yourself financially and professionally regardless of the cost of education. So you could say that that was a good reason for the federal government to get involved so that everyone had the opportunity to access education and professional education in particular. The problem is the federal government got involved with it without any regulation for higher education institutions whatsoever, right? And so you had unlimited cost of borrowing. Basically, the government allowed, you know, these schools to charge anything for the price of education. And they didn't preference programs like state institutions, which could frankly really easily increase the size of their classes. And, you know, if, you know, for example, you have a state school and one school, private school costs 400 grand, the state school costs 200 because it's just, you know, has more of a mandate to keep costs low. Well, you could get a two for one special on creating physicians if we would just create, you know, an incentive to, to have people go to the state school, right? But we don't do that as in our system. So I guess that's one big par- part of the problem. And then the other part of the problem is people, we have a college completion problem. So people who have $10,000, who don't have a degree, who go back to working in a minimum wage job, uh, you know, a $10,000 debt is debilitating for somebody that makes minimum wage. I mean, that might be close to 50% of their earnings, but you're scraping pennies, especially if you have kids, it's just impossible, right? And, And two, you know, you don't have very good assistance from the loan servicers. So a lot of these individuals end up in default. And when you have people that are in default you're not, you're not capable of, well, I mean, a lot of times you're just, you don't know what your options are. And so instead of having your loans be in an income-based system, your credit gets wrecked and you can't get out of this hole. And then your tax refunds get garnished and it's just a a big mess. And then the other big problem is because of the cost was never constrained or regulated. Now people can have, basically they they have these giant debts when they graduate because you can get as much as you want. And then they're not really, people are not, logically supposed to pay this off because it just doesn't make sense to based off of the ability to pay based on your income, that's a big problem. If I can pay fifteen percent of my income or ten percent of my income, I don't care what the amount of debt that I have is because my payment is the same regardless of the size of my debt. So you've decoupled the cost, you know, completely uh, of what what I actually have to pay. So I guess those are the multifaceted problems. On one hand, we tried to address this this the injustice of higher education to get people more access. Then we sort of just created a new problem that's just totally different than new. I want to get to that new problem in a minute, but I feel like
0: there is a decision tree that occurs way at the beginning that precedes everything else, and that is the decision whether to get student loans in the first place or not. Has the calculus changed on that? compared to let's say the early 2000s or the 1980s does it still make sense to use the traditional student loan system
1: are you saying like in terms of just the the traditional system instead of borrowing from an alternative source or what what do you what do you say what do you think? I think
0: I think things have changed in the sense that people are using scholarships more. People are finding different ways to get an education, even outside of the traditional university system. So there are a lot more inputs and a lot more decisions, I think, facing someone of 2020 than maybe there was in early 2000s about how to go about and get an education.
1: Do you think yeah. the
0: thought process is different today than it was back then?
1: That's, I mean, it's a great question. It's, it's, it's hard to answer that with a good answer. I think that if you look at higher education, part of it is learning skills. Part of it is learning how, how to do new hard things that make you a skilled worker instead of an unskilled worker. And to do that, you know, you need to go out and go to some sort of organized program or have the motivation to do it yourself. Most people are not that motivated. Most people, if you look at online course completion rates, for example, there's a lot of online courses out there, right? The course completion rates aren't particularly good. So when I'm not being graded, when I'm not required to do something, I might skip doing it. And that's an argument for going to a higher education institution because you want to be a skilled worker instead of an unskilled worker. So for somebody who has the motivation to go out and learn regardless of what program they're in, those people are going to be just fine, right? Those people are not going to have problems. But that's, again, I think the minority of the population. And so in terms of higher education, I think it's still very needed. In terms of, you know how you should finance it. the The cost is only getting higher, right? And and so all the the, the strategies you used back in the eighties, nineties, those are still available. The internet now exists, which makes finding scholarships a lot easier, too, right? I think the smartest thing you can do if you are coming from a family of modest means is simply to go to your flagship state university. Why do I think that? Besides being biased, because that's what I did, right? I think that your flagship state university represents the best value in higher education. If you're thinking about the value versus cost, uh, a regional state university is going to be fine. Like it'll be fine, but there's not that big of a price difference usually between the regional state university and the flagship state university. So for example, if I go to Berkeley, for example, or UCLA, there's not a huge price difference. I think between those schools and like, one of the random Cal State universities, right? Like pr- probably not a huge price difference, and so that means I think that there's a really large value difference. Because if I'm coming out of you know a Berkeley or a UCLA, like I'm going to have more do- doors open to me in the professional world than if I come out of a state school. Does it like one of the state Cal State schools doesn't mean that I still can't get to the same place? Certainly, I could. It's just going to be maybe a little bit harder. But the same token, like you know you can work part time, get scholarships, and come out with a modest amount of student loan debt, twenty thirty thousand coming out of a Berkeley or UCLA, versus if you go to, you know, USC, too bad so sad, you better hope your parents ready to mortgage their house. So I think that's kind of the way that I would look at it is, you know, yes, it's still worth it to go to school, but look for where the value is. And if you are one of these folks that really wants prestige and, and signaling and wants to have a prestigious you know law school or business school or medical school open to them with the easiest path to get there, then maybe what you need to be focusing on, or if you're a parent, you have kids, what you need to want them to focus on is just get really good scores, get really good grades, work really hard in high school, get good SATs, extracurriculars, and then, try to go to the best value in your state, wherever that is, which is probably going to be the the state where most of your state legislators went to that 's another great kind of rule of thumb is look and see what you know where all the state legislators went to, and that's probably the best school to go to for the cheapest you know for the best value if you're looking to have some sort of profession where you live
0: so clearly, student loan debt is not going anywhere most of us get through our education or hopefully get through our education. And then only later after we're out in the workforce, do we start thinking about what we're going to do with those loans. Tell me the importance of counseling when you're managing your student loan debt. How big of a difference does it make to
1: get professional help as
0: opposed to kind of wing it on your own and figure it out?
1: So I think that the thing is, is the schools are required to give you exit counseling. So when they give you exit counseling, you know, the thing is, is they're not required to give you great advice. They're just required to give you exit counseling, right? So it's kind of like taking the DMV test doesn't mean that you're safe to drive. I mean, the, the thing about student loans is they're going to tell you to sign up for an income based plan. That's basically what they're going to say to do. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And, and, you know, if you follow their advice, what most people have happened to them is they have a six month kind of grace period after graduation and they'll get defaulted into some sort of income-based plan. So for, you know, for a lot of people, they'll end up paying 10% of their income, but they just don't know if it's on the plan that gives them interest subsidies or if it's the plan that gets them faster forgiveness. So they're not going to know what your future goals are, you know, and they're not going to have analyzed your marital status and things that influence which plan you choose. So they're just going to put you on a plan, which at the end of the day it might not be terrible like it might be okay the plan they put you on but it might not be too so that's the difference between getting professional help and sort of doing the do it yourself solution is a lot of people will do just really inefficient things like they'll pay extra when you don't even need to pay extra you're going for forgiveness but they're making extra payments cuz that makes them emotionally feel good well that's wasted money and again, people will sign up for the wrong plan. They'll sign up for the wrong tax filing strategy because their CPA won't be familiar with student loans. So it's just kind of like, like with anything. If you had a complex medical condition, you would want to go get treated by a specialist and you'd want to go to a specialist that does a lot of those procedures with a high level of volume. You probably wouldn't want to go to just the generalist that does you know a couple of them a month or a few of them, you know, uh, a year or something because then you're not going to get the kind of really great help that you really deserve, right? So that's the reason why we limit our scope of things. Like we probably could do other things, we probably could do financial planning and sell disability insurance and those kind of things, but we don't do any of those things because we want to be so focused on student loans. And I will say that that doesn't come without anxiety as a business owner because from just a pure business standpoint, if they forgive all student loans, or, you know, if they allow people to not pay student loans until two years from now, because of the pandemic, uh, it might might not necessarily be the wrong policy decision. That's like a a different discussion. But yeah, it certainly is is kind of an interesting uh, life as a business owner to just, you know, not know if you're supposed to hire another, you know, 10 people or lay everybody off or, you know, so I mean, it just requires flexibility. And that's kind of take it back to earlier that's why financial independence and that mindset of just doing whatever it is you're passionate about at that moment is so helpful because at the end of the day if all this goes away I'm fine I'll try to find some other challenge to work on I'll probably take some time off and read and try to rethink what I should be doing with my life but right now I'm so passionate about this problem and and if it gets solved I don't I'm not not needed anymore right <laughs> and uh, and if it doesn't get solved which is probably the more likely outcome we have this just expertise that's just unmatched to help people.
0: Yeah. One of the wonderful things about people who pursue financial independence, when they do decide to go back to work and do something they're passionate about, their only skin in the game tends to be doing the right thing, which is really refreshing. Because as a customer who's coming to someone like you, it's nice to know that you don't have all these other concerns on your mind, like, how am I going to support my business? you're mainly focusing on what value can i bring to my customer and that's really refreshing let's talk a little bit about how i would be looking at this as the novice as someone who doesn't have much experience with this you know i always figured don't you just pay off the debt as fast as you possibly can like this was always my thought you know go to medical school when you're done you just pay it off as fast as you can Now I realize that there are things such as loan forgiveness, there are tax consequences. There are all sorts of other things going on that I didn't realize.
1: Yeah, so if you're a pediatrician and you make $150,000 a year, and let's say you work in private practice and you make $150,000 a year, so you're not eligible for the generous not-for-profit loan forgiveness program called Public Service Loan Forgiveness, and that plan you just pay based on your income for 10 years and they forgive everything. So that's the most generous forgiveness plan. And that would be a no-brainer why you wouldn't want to pay anything towards your loans because it all would be forgiven, right? So for a less obvious example, if you're a pediatrician working, you know, in a small private practice, just kind of making do, not making a killing, just sort of making a decent income, but nothing to brag about to your physician friends. Let's say you have $300,000 from a medical school education. So you could pay it back, you're making 150,000 maybe after taxes you're taking home maybe 100 to 120 maybe about let's just say 10,000 a month and if you put $5,000 a month towards your school loans then you know you could be done in maybe 6-7 years I mean that would be pretty good right but the problem with that is if you do 5,000 a month towards your loans and you've got 5,000 left to live on well you got to pay your mortgage pay daycare pay for the wedding all the extra other things so that you don't burn out like going on a vacation every now and then right and it's not a sustainable path. It's not a sustainable pace, if you will. So if you're going to finish a race as a runner, you have to run a a pace that you can sustain, right? Otherwise, you're just going to stop from exhaustion. And people's personal finances are very similar. You know, when you had the debts from 20 years ago, taking that super aggressive path was possible because one, interest rates were lower because of the way they structured the program. And then two, you know, you could really get after the loan much faster and watch the balance fall much more rapidly because you're just dealing with a smaller balance with much less interest. So, so that's a good path for a lot of people. I'm not going to discount that. I think that a lot of people could get on to a, a revised pay-as-you-earn plan for some interest subsidies early on and training and then just get after it as an attending and be done with student loans in five years by paying at least 2% of their principal balance every month. So I think that that's a, certainly a, a possible path. I just think that you shouldn't do it That pediatrician or that whatever that person who has a ton of debt should not do that if they have other goals in their life that are maybe more important to them, you know than like like having a kid, buying a house, being an adult, getting married. All those things are possible, and to do that, that pediatrician could simply pay based off of his or her income and just go for a loan forgiveness program in the private sector and and focus on saving for retirement and you know Vanguard mutual funds instead.
0: It reminds me a lot of that argument about paying off your mortgage immediately versus paying it long-term. And maybe a way to look at a lot of these student loan debts, at least right now for a young professional coming out of schooling or residency, is to look at it much more like a mortgage.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the other thing, too, is I think personal finance, it's not... A lot of us think a lot of times it's about savings rate optimization, Right in the FIRE community, it's like, how can I save more? How can I cut my spending even more? And perhaps what we should be thinking about is, is happiness optimization. So happiness optimization, it looks different because one, you're not happy if you're in lots of debt and consumer debt, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're not making any progress, okay? You might think you're happy, but the future you is going to not be happy because you have to make up for all the bad decisions that you made earlier on. That is not happiness. And then extreme savings is you know it maybe it's not happiness because you're because you're depriving yourself or you feel like you are and and maybe you're not maybe you don't feel deprived at all but maybe your loved one feels deprived maybe one of your friends or family member that wants to see you at that family vacation that costs a couple thousand dollars feels deprived and You know, and maybe by not going to that event because you're trying to maintain your savings rate, maybe you end up less happy long term. Maybe it's not short term, but maybe after something happens in your personal life and you wish you'd had that experience, you can't go back and rehab that experience. So I think there's balance is what I'm saying. I I think that people in personal finance don't think enough about that. So student loans, having student loans and dealing with student loans, it's about having this sweet spot behind, you know, between, you know, being able to retire in your fifties or sixties and also enjoying life presently. And then, you know, if somebody has a different goal, don't get me wrong, we can optimize for it. Like if somebody wants to retire at 35, let's go. But I just don't want people to think it's it's this either or thing. And and I just want to push back too against some people who might be like me in the fire community where, I mean, I would say that uh, I live a lot more balanced life than I used to. I mean, I, I used to be all about clunker cars limbing in unfinished basements and drinking water with a lime in it so people would think I was having uh, you know, uh, uh tequila at the bar when I just got the water for free and paid a, to- a dollar tip to save some money. And don't get me wrong, that was a fun part of my life, but I think that it's important to remember that balance is, is something to to respect.
0: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with a visceral, uncompromising and dramatic feel. This car helps you rise to the occasion. How does it do that? Range Rover Sport has powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability by combining assertiveness with signature Range Rover refinement. This is the car that redefines sporting luxury. The new Range Rover Sport features advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification. So we're talking about student loan planning with Travis Hornsby. Let's pivot, Travis, a little bit and talk about our current economic situation. We are in the midst of what looks to be a global recession. We are facing the coronavirus pandemic. How is this changing people's student loan planning?
1: So the CARES Act got passed a couple months ago as we record this, and that's freezing people's student loan payments and interest if they're owned by the Department of Education and that's, and that's a big deal. I mean, because that credit counts for forgiveness and it doesn't, the interest doesn't accrue onto you, onto your balance. And it doesn't help you if you've got private student loans, unfortunately, but it helps most student loan borrowers and especially it helps most of the vulnerable student loan borrowers that are out there. So that's great. That's helpful, but it's kind of like a, let's pretend that you've got some bad arthritis in your knee doc, and you take a shot of, uh, okay, I'm going to, you know, really show my lack of medical knowledge here, but you take a shot to relieve the pain and that shot's not going to last forever. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. You
0: get a little cortisone, makes it feel good maybe for weeks or months, but it's not going to make the problem go away.
1: It's not going to make the problem go away. So that's kind of what's happening right now in our country is that the student loan relief that the CARES Act did is essentially a cortisone shot and it's going to be good for a little while and it's going to help and it's going to really bring some real relief. But when it expires, and they might come up with a new bill, by the way, Uh, a new bill might be passed that would extend the CARES Act and the interest freeze even longer than that. But it's not going to, it shouldn't be confused as a strategy, right? So what is the long-term strategy? Is it physical therapy? Is it total knee replacement? Uh, You know, what, what are you going to do to fix the problem? And the way you fix the problem is by having a plan for building your assets to be much larger than your loans optimizing the loans so they don't wreck your finances and minimizing the payments. Alternatively, you can also take the more aggressive approach and pay it all off and just get totally rid of the debt. But to do that, you want to be smart about other things. Like, for example, if your interest is at 0%, why are people putting so much money into their student loans? You can put your money in a savings account maybe and get half a percent. That's positive interest rate arbitrage, right? I mean, so if you talk about a way to earn guaranteed money, I mean, it could simply be putting it in a savings account until the interest freeze is over, earning some extra interest, and then just dumping all the money on the loans at that time. So there's all these like thoughts and tricks about loans that people are sort of kind of, I don't think, not really thinking about during this time. A lot of advice in the media has sort of been, oh, now's a great time to pay extra on your principal because it's all going to principal because there's no interest. And that kind of advice, again, it kind of ignores... The fact that, hey, maybe saving for retirement is a great thing to start if you haven't been doing that right now because the stock market fell some. Maybe it's a great time to build up your emergency fund or eliminate all of your short-term debt because restaurants aren't able to take your orders in some cases, you know? So I think that that that's that's my thought on the on the managing student loans during the pandemic is, you know, I think that this environment, you want to be even more strategic because it's not, the relief is not going to make the pain go away. And then you also want to be thinking about what the future of student loans is is going to be after this. Because it's kind of like in 2008, I think, where the markets kind of, when the, when the Federal Reserve bailed out markets and everybody's like, oh, that was a one-time thing, the markets just didn't believe them. So now everybody, the markets just sort of wait for the next big crisis and they're just waiting on the Federal Reserve to just come in and rescue the moment. I think that you're kind of creating a similar atmosphere around student loans with this pandemic. And so I think this actually significantly increases the chances of more generous loan forgiveness long-term. It's not going to happen in the short term for, I think, clear political reasons, right? But I think in the long-term, you're going to see more likelihood of student loan forgiveness just because of the environment that we're living in.
0: Based on this idea that student loan forgiveness may be a bigger topic in the future, Does that beg the question whether people should be freezing their payments right now, even if they could be making them?
1: I think so. I mean, I think that the people who owe less than what they make every year and those people that are working in the private sector, I don't think that there's much concern that those people should have that they're going to get loan forgiveness. They should just pay their debt off, you know, but people that you know, have more than what they owe. Uh, sorry, more than what they earn in student loan debt. So people that you know their their salaries are smaller than their student loan debt balances. Those people should really be seriously taking a hard second look at their loan stuff and thinking, hey, maybe maybe I need to be real cautious here because I might be getting some significant loan forgiveness. Uh, and I think it's real likely. I do. I think that you know, if you look at the taxability of loan forgiveness, I don't think that that's something that's going to end up happening. So at the end of the day, like for people in the private sector, I think that there's just too many people that will be impacted. So for them to not just wa- waive that, I think that there will be all kinds of maybe pressure to even lower the payments even further than where they're already at. So I, I think that you know, if you're a plastic surgeon making a million dollars a year, yeah, pay your student loans down. If you're an undergraduate, if you're an engineer with 60000 income and 30000 of debt from undergrad, yeah, pay your debt off. But if you're somebody that owes more than what they earn, you might, you might d- double, do a double take.
0: You mentioned just briefly tax forgiveness if loans are forgiven. That's a big issue. People don't realize that if their loans are forgiven, they may still have a pretty big tax bill waiting for them.
1: Yeah, and that's only if you're in the private sector. I want to make that clear. But if you have a private sector job with a lot of loans and you pursue a 20 or 25 year forgiveness program, you have to pay taxes on any student loans that are forgiven At the end of that multi decade payment period, which is a big surprise to some people when they find that out. Other people are well aware of it and they're simply saving a few hundred dollars a month into mutual funds every month to pay that tax liability. But if you think about it, that's very unlikely that they're going to charge it. And the simple reason is you have this mostly affecting people with high high levels of education who are small business owners in their communities, people that employ other people, for example, dentists, chiropractors physicians, lawyers in a lot of cases. And and these individuals are going to be older when this forgiveness happens. They'll be in their 50s and 60s. And that's an important voter you know, to, to make happy, right? There's a reason we have so much money we spend on Medicare, Social Security. It's because old people vote. So this new issue will be affecting older people. And it's not nearly as expensive as fixing a, uh, a Social Security or a Medicare. It's much, much cheaper to do that. So it's just an issue that a very educated, very highly wealthy and old, dare I say, demographic group will care a lot about, and so that's why I think you'll see elimination of the tax bomb eventually. I think you might see the first few people get hit with it, and there'll be such an outcry. You know, there'll be all these news stories: uh, dentist loses practice to the bank because you know he has to pay his tax on what he borrowed as a 26-year-old. Right? I think that those kind of articles are gonna cause the public to want to eliminate that at some point.
0: Now, considering the CARES Act, we talked about the payment and interest freezes. Are there other nuances or salient points to current legislation that's affecting student loan payments, or is that really the main issue right now?
1: Well, the HEROES Act was something that was the CARES Act on steroids, and that would have actually even allowed some private loans to be set up for income-based repayment and, and forgiveness. And so that bill obviously did not pass, you know, at least when we're recording this, you know, who knows. But they are working on a new coronavirus relief bill or stimulus bill at some point possibly. And so it's just sort of a wait and see approach. Like we could very well see future, more legislation affecting student loan borrowers. There was a, a bill that had bipartisan support to forgive student loans for people that were defrauded by for-profit colleges that got vetoed by the president recently. So that's something that kind of would maybe indicate that don't get your hopes up for for further student loan relief, but never say never. I could actually see the the Senate Republicans be very much on board with extending the interest and payment freeze on federal student loans just because of the nature of what's going on in the economy right now. It's not a good economy. There's a lot of people out of work. But if it didn't happen, if they don't extend it, then you should know that your first payment is going to be October the 30th. So the the payment freeze ends September 30th, people's due dates are generally a month after that. So October 30th is when most people will have to be thinking about their student loan payments if, if this does not get extended.
0: You bring up an interesting point as you talk about the politics, because so much of student loan debt is federally funded, it really is a political football that gets kicked down the field. Certainly, whichever political party is in place at the time could have profound effects on what legislation goes through and how you will end up paying your student loan debt. You mentioned in your crystal ball, you foresaw more loan forgiveness. Any other trends you think long-term, maybe regardless of which political party ends up in place?
1: I think at some point, you start to see pushback Against the universities that have caused this problem, so a lot of universities will hide behind excuses as to why the cost of education is so much higher. They'll say things like state governments reduced our support, right, or they'll say something like, "Well, the cost of education has just gone up," without any accounting, without any explanation as to why that is, uh, without any breakdown of their of their budgets showing, you know, much higher levels of money going to research and capital expenditures for new buildings and things like that. So I think that you have a a university system that is completely insensitive to cost concerns that families have. And I think that that anger will eventually make its way back on universities at some point. And I think you'll see some movement to regulate the cost of higher education. You know, if you look at other countries like in Europe, for example, in the UK, there are very strict regulations on what schools are allowed to charge students you could argue they receive more support from their governments but but even so there's regulations and you could argue we're giving massive support to these institutions already through loan forgiveness programs we're just, just not giving it directly you know what i mean so i think that'll be one thing that'll change i think the loan forgiveness will become more generous over time just because of the problem is so large and you're seeing just you know the political conversation i think move probably just a more center left like direction in general in terms of like policy proposals like the median policy proposal is more progressive i think and then i think that if you do have a unexpected repeal or 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 sort of making these loan rules less generous uh, i think that what you have always seen in all the repeal proposals that i've read that would do things like the PROSPER Act, which would allow people to basically not get loan forgiveness anymore except for very sort of limited circumstances. That would only affect people who are not enrolled in a program. And it would only affect people who are enrolled in the program for the first time basically about a year after the bill passes. So really people would have a long lead time with any changes that could happen before that they were really affected. So that's good news because anybody who has already committed to a set of rules should be in, in, in fine shape. And people who have not yet committed to a set of rules would at least have the opportunity to have a warning before they go and sign up for a, a very uh, unattractive set of, of financing for higher education, which I think would, if that were to happen, I think you'd see even more pressure on the schools to push down prices too. So I think that there's reasons to be very optimistic. And, uh, and people shouldn't really get too worried about the future. Obviously there's a lot of anxiety in the country in general right now with the pandemic, with the social injustice that's happened. But, but I think the future, kind of like Warren Buffett says, you know always bet on America. The same is true for the future of being able to get an education and get an education to do what you love. You'll find a way. It might not be pretty, you might make mistakes, but that's kind of why we exist is try to make people make sure people make fewer of them.
0: You know, Travis, it's really nice to hear you say that. As someone I know who is knee-deep in the student loan debt crisis and managing it every day, to hear your optimism, I think, gives us hope because it's so easy, especially in people who are interested in personal finance in general, for us to look at this big weight on our shoulders as something that's going to crush us. But listening to you, I feel a good deal of optimism that young people today will be able to get a great education and be able to live their lives without being crushed by student loan debt.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm lucky that I had this opportunity. I mean, I'm grateful for it. And you know, if this opportunity, like I said, if everyone gets their loans forgiven, eha, let me try to find something else. Okay, I mean, I don't know what it's going to be, but but this is this is such an exciting thing to try to fix because it's so painful to people we've done research that suggests it just severely impacts people's mental health which is not a good thing and 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 you know too i just want to just last more one more comment too we saw what's possible when we all come together with the the spacex launch to the first you know launch from american soil in a decade the people who did that were so diverse uh, on the on the crew for spacex that put this together and they did it because they had an education right they had a, enormous amounts of education and it was very technical and complex and everyone was working together to achieve this aim. And then the Artemis missions, as we look forward to that, are, are going to put the first woman on the moon. So how exciting of a project to look forward to for that, right? So higher education is so important. It's it's in this world where we're you can work from anywhere. Guess what? You cannot work from anywhere unless you're really a skilled worker. I mean, You're not going to get to work in the middle of nowhere with an internet connection unless the value of your knowledge work is so high that you can justify getting paid 50 to 100 grand or more for that labor. So get a higher education. Goodness sakes, get that education and make good use of it, right? But what you shouldn't do is let the dangers and the stress of it debilitate you. And so I would tell somebody, you know, studentloanplanner.com is one place they can check out blog posts to get help with that. We have a podcast, Student Loan Planner podcast, for people that want to listen to stories of people dealing with similar problems. And if people owe more than what they earn in student loan debt, they could certainly reach out to us to get a custom plan for their situation.
0: And just so everybody knows, what are the web address and what's the best way to reach you for those resources?
1: Yeah, studentloanplanner.com. If you want to ask me something, there's a a contact button in the bottom right of that uh, website where you can send us an email. So the studentloanplanner.com is the best place because that's going to have all the resources that you could really want to look for. So just look in the menu, look at all the different you know, podcast links and hiring us links. It's all there. So if you go to studentloanplanner.com, you'll be able to find us and, and share your story.
0: And Travis, tell us what's up next in your life, either personally or with the business. What's going on?
1: We're having a baby in a few months. Knock on wood. Wow, congrats. Um, my wife and I, yeah. So uh, that's number one, two, and three of what we're dealing with. And what a great time to try to orchestrate a paternity leave in my own small business for when 35 million people start, theoretically start their student loan payments again in, in <laughs> September and October, right? So we'll see how that goes. But all, all I can say is I, am, I had my 30th birthday party in New Orleans on January 24th, you know, kind of before people were worried about, at least non-medical people, right, were super worried about travel and going places and all those things. And I'm so glad that I had that experience with my close family celebrating together because that's a memory I'm holding onto that I, I know that at some point we'll have again. But 2020 has been volatile. I'm sure for the the listener, for you listening, it's been a tough year, right? I think nobody, very few people are like, giddy up, 2020 was my best year ever. Amazing, right? There's some people out there that probably feel that way, but but it's been a tough year. It's been a really tough year. And I'm looking forward to, The future because life is like roller coasters, right? There's ups and downs. Right now, our country is kind of in a down, but the good news is when you're in a down, it's a lot easier to go back up. And the same thing is true for people beaten down by student loans. If you've gone down, you've got a long way to to just nothing but up, basically. (laughs) So trust me when I say that. We've advised, you know, like I said, a billion dollars in student loans for thousands of people. So I'm not just making it up, I can prove it. So I'm looking forward to that being a dad and and trying to figure out what's going to happen in this new economy of ours.
0: These have definitely been difficult times, extraordinary times. And one of the ways we all get through it is by having experts out there who are walking us through all of these hurdles we're facing. And when it comes to student loans, that is Travis Hornsby. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Travis. That's a wrap. That's it. I'm calling an end to 2020 right now. That's right, it's only July, but I think we've had enough 2020 for a lifetime. I am going to do my year and review and share with you three thoughts. 2020 was the year that I was wrong, unconditionally wrong, over and over again. It started in January, and February, where I started hearing about this thing, this coronavirus. And being a doctor, I'd heard about coronaviruses a lot, and many of them were harmless colds. And... My first thought is, oh, this is nothing. People are making a big deal out of something that doesn't matter. I, at the time, also was in the midst of a fairly low information diet. I was trying not to read the news on a regular basis. So I heard the rumblings and I had my own scientific knowledge, but I certainly did not take it seriously. And as so many of us, of course, I was wrong. By March, I was at the economy conference, the last place I went, before the world shut down, before we started our long pause, I was wrong. I thought that this wasn't going to pretty much affect our lives at all. And I was wrong about the Black Lives Matter movement. I had always been a big fan and supporter, but... Up until this year, I've lived my life thinking that if I just did and said the right things, if I just lived my life as best of an example as I could, if I was introspective enough, then I was filling my obligation to society. And in so fulfilling, I had decided that enough was to be quiet. I had decided that enough was to not speak up. I had decided that enough was to live by example, and I was wrong. And if nothing, 2020 has shown me that sometimes we have to be loud, sometimes we have to be aggressive, sometimes we have to speak up, and that's not easy for someone like me who tends to be a unifier. Someone like me who likes to bring peace and agreement, as opposed to someone who maybe now I have to start thinking about occasionally being disruptive, that sometimes we can't unify, that sometimes we have to be loud and get people's attention. And so I was wrong all these years, not wrong in my core beliefs, but maybe wrong in my reticence to share them. More than anything in 2020, I thought a lot about acceptance. This, for me, is the year of acceptance. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about acceptance in the sense that there are bad things in the world and they don't need to be changed, that there are bad things in our country There are bad things politically and socially and economically, and we should do nothing about it. I'm not talking about that kind of acceptance. What this year has taught me above all is that there's things I can't control. And so I can struggle to create and tell myself a story that is untruthful because it feels good, because it helps me go about my daily life without stress. Or I can accept where we are. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to change the world around me. But we are in this place that is fairly imperfect. Our society is imperfect. I am imperfect. And this year, being stuck in the house, working less in an employed job than I ever have, podcasting, Having big discussions has made me think a lot about how I accept my world. Because if I don't get to acceptance, I'm not sure I can ever make things better. I'm not sure I can ever mold or change my world in ways that are necessary if I don't first accept where we are today. So it's been a crazy year, 2020. It's been a year of being wrong. It's been a year of learning how to accept where I am in order, hopefully, to make changes that are beneficial for myself, hopefully for the people around me. And last but not least, 2020 has been a year of deep and profound discussions, The earn and invest podcast has allowed me to invite people I respect highly into my world to discuss the things that they've either lived through or know best to question them about their realm of expertise, deep discussions, acceptance and understanding and being wrong. That's been 2020 for me. So I can't promise that I won't be wrong in the future, much as I've been wrong in 2020. But I can promise that I'll think a lot about it and course correct and get better. I can't promise that I'll automatically accept where we are in this world or where I am personally. That sometimes I'll have to struggle just to see the truthfulness of where I stand before I can move forward. But I will promise, I will promise that we'll keep on having these deep, rich discussions together here on the Earn and Invest podcast. cool man thanks doc that was a lot of fun i kept it more on the broad side because i didn't want to go deep in because the truth of the matter is i think with someone like you like my job is to introduce them to you and then they go find your information and really
1: dive deep into the more specific answers um it's just really enjoyable to talk to you doc um I mean, it's just fine to just have a conversation right now. Yeah, just talk to another human, uh, you know? I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I've watched way too much CNN this, this weekend. I, I know. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.